Thank you, Catherine and team, for leading us, beginning to be more fully aware of the presence of God. It's good to be gathered today. Is anyone ready for spring? I think it's here. I, I hesitate to say that. I think after this week, from what we forecast, we'll know it is. Did anyone plant something this week? Come on, don't be shy. Did anyone plant something this week? I spent a few hours yesterday planting a number of things that just have been sitting in pots for far too long. Every free moment, it seemed like it was pouring down rain over the last number of weeks. So got finally a chance to get some trees. Have you ever tried to plant a 350-pound maple tree by yourself? <laughs> yeah, I planted two of those yesterday. Uh, we can talk more later whether that was smart or if you need help in knowing how to do that. I will tell you how you too can do that on your own. We have a vision of being like a greenhouse church, really just probably renewed language to something that has been true for decades of history in this body. That God continues to bring in his his plants, maybe new shoots to grow deep roots and ultimately to produce diverse fruit. And the most growth doesn't happen in the greenhouse. So you come through a winter season and some of us come into a greenhouse with that analogy, just like plants do, having been weather-beaten and worn and maybe not about to survive without coming into a place to heal, to grow, to recover. Others come in with new, the new, truly new shoots like a sapling and need to grow deep to be ready for a field that God is planting us into. And I recognize that with that vision and trying to capture the history that is true in, in this body, in this family, Really, for about the last 84 years, we're coming up, I think, on our 84th, 85th anniversary in June. And none of us, was anyone there at the beginning here? No. <laughs> we too are a church plant. We have a desire to plant and to send. And so we, we, we just celebrate the work that God does as he brings us to grow and then he sends us and moves us, and that seems to be true often. And I recognize that when you start to capture that language and championing that vision, both of what God has done and aspire to what he could do, we recognize that some of that is replanting and sending, and that's part of the reality and the story. And so, you may be here today, and God may call and send and move, and that might be tomorrow, that might be in a month, it might be in 10 years from now. But what we do know is that we are here today and we are planted in what we hope is like a greenhouse environment to grow deep roots, to grow deep in Christ and in relationship with one another, to produce fruit that he wants to bear into our lives. So if you're newer to our community, there's a snapshot, there's a picture of who we are and there's much more we could share and we'd love to connect with you and be able to share more of our story and maybe how it lines up with your story. Here's an old-fashioned way of getting connected. At some point, if you want to fill out any amount of information, even a name and an email, we can at least connect that way uh, or send a card via real snail mail, real old-fashioned, or even a phone call. Could you believe it? People talk on the phone today. If you just prefer text, put that in a parenthesis and we'll text you and we won't get too much of into your business. But if you want to be on an email list, for some of you that are committed here, if you're not on our regular email list, uh, we send out probably one at most two a week. So it's not like we're bombarding your email box like many companies out there. If you want to be on the list, get on the list. You can drop that in the bag. Or if you just have prayer requests or other things we can be connecting with you on, we want to do that. So things happening this week, you can check the bulletin for that. I think I need to give a plug for the 
men's morning. If you missed this last week, Rory has promised to once again cook a hunting camp breakfast. So if you're not a hunter and you never intend to go out into the woods with Rory, which might be a good thing, then come to our breakfast, 6.30 this morning, and you will get at least a taste of the hunting lifestyle as we also open God's Word together, fellowship with one another, and begin our day, in some ways begin our week centered on, on the Lord. So men, we are, I don't think there's anyone there who wants to be there at 6 o'clock in the morning, and maybe even at 6.30 when it starts, and who knows, maybe even at 6.45, but at some point it seems that everyone says, I'm glad I was here, and many of you guys who have plugged in even continue to come back. Amazing, God's work amongst us. But we don't want to take another night out of our busy schedules, especially dads, and, or a Saturday morning, so we carve out this space that very few of us can't make if we won't set an alarm and ask our spouse to kick us out of bed. So I encourage you again, we'll probably run this for another couple months and then pause a bit over the summer uh, to be determined, but we invite you guys to plug in and come out, and this will be a good one to come. We don't always have a full breakfast. We sometimes just have our meager rations, but the Word is always rich, and the fellowship is usually good. So I invite you to that. Let me pray as we turn to the Word. So our our kiddos are going to head out and turn to the Word in their classes, and then we too will turn to the Word, and we'll be in Acts chapter 8. There's an advance notice to you, but let me pray for our kids, four through fourth grade, as they go to hear the Word in their context. Father, we thank you that we are a family and a community that you are growing, that you are present in, that you are at work in, and you, God, you are God of the Word. Now we turn to the Word of God, and we seek to know you more fully. Would you speak to us? Continue to speak. You have revealed yourself. You're making yourself known in, in so many ways, but we thank you that we have your scriptures to ground us as our firm foundation And so we turn to them, Lord, to know more of your heart, to be reminded of who you are, what you've done, what you've promised to do, and what you've invited us to join you in. And I pray that our young ones, these new shoots, would continue to grow up in you, in your ways, in your will. Bless the teachers and caregivers as they show your love and as they communicate your truth to their ears and their hearts. And also speak to us, Lord, we pray, we give you the remainder of this morning, for your glory and our joy. Amen. All right, kids, fourth through fourth grade, you're welcome to walk on out of here and join Mr. Eric there in the back. He's waiting for you. And I invite you guys to turn to Acts chapter 8. And there won't be a full reading this morning, but turn to Acts chapter 8. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 1. This verse will be on the screen if you can't find Acts chapter 1. Acts is after the first, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about two-thirds of the way through this book. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 916, 916. If you have one of your own Bibles, you'll have to search for it. Let me read first, Acts 1, verse 8, probably some of the most famous words in this letter by Dr. Luke. They're some of the last words that Jesus ever spoke while here on earth. They should be familiar with, to you if you've been with us in this series, and if you haven't, you may have also heard them. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, 
in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That becomes like a guide for the rest of Luke's letter. So now hear the first eight verses of Acts chapter 8, page 916, if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack. This is following the murder of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles, who seemed to remain. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. We'll pause there. We'll continue the story up through verse 25 this morning, but we'll pause there. Do you see the link from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to now what we see in Acts chapter 8? The fulfillment of Jesus' words continues. The first seven chapters, the disciples, the apostles, the early church is faithfully witnessing in Jerusalem. The Spirit has come upon them and they are His witness right in their hometown. Now in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit continues to fulfill this commission, fulfills these words. You will be my witnesses in Judea, that's the surrounding region, and even in Samaria. That'll make more sense. I added that word, even, but for their ears, that's what they would have heard. Even in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the global perspective of the call of God's people. Well, here it's being fulfilled, not necessarily in the way they probably would have drawn up if they came up with a strategic plan to try to get their mind around how to fulfill that that incredible call, that daunting task. From 120 or so faithful followers of Jesus, but huddling in fear in an upper room to fulfill this call to be witnesses not just in their city, in their hometown, not where they had just, just where they had been planted and were living, but even in the surrounding region, even amongst people not like them, that were even hated by the Jews, the Samaritans, but even to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who's doing this work. While they could have come up with their own plan and way and timeline of how we send and plant, it comes about through persecution. God ultimately does the scattering of his people to fulfill his call. Well, this morning we continue our series within the series as we work through the the letter of Acts, the letter of Dr. Luke to his friend Theophilus. We continue this series that I said I could have preached jumping through the series, but not in a linear way, on core convictions. As a church, we hold ten core convictions. You can find them on our website under Tell Me More if you want to jump on there. But I've preached through a number of them already. 
And these are ten convictions that we both hold to and strive for. It's an already not yet kind of thing. And maybe you have your own personal values or convictions that you try to live by. In some ways you hold to them, you try to make decisions by them, and in other ways they're aspirational. You know you're not yet living in that way, but you desire to. Same thing as a church. These ten convictions are are drawn right out of Scripture, and they are all modeled by the early church. So we'll see every, every one of them as we work our way through this letter. I've preached on a number of them, and there's probably none seen more clearly in its entire, the entirety of this letter than this one, the title of this sermon. Lost people matter to God, and He wants them saved. This is not just seen throughout Acts. Take your pick of when you want to preach this sermon, and it'll happen again and again, especially in these next couple chapters. But this is seen cover to cover. This is the whole book. Lost people matter to God, and He wants them saved. That's the preeminent storyline from cover to cover. It's why Jesus came, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So for those of you here this morning who know you're lost, it's time to be found. For those of you that would say, I feel aimless. I feel wandering. Maybe you say, I feel hopeless. Maybe you would say, I feel like I just am going through the motions of life. And perhaps your story is, my life has just been so radically changed or turned on its head, I feel lost. I don't know what to do next. What I want to tell you is what I believe Jesus would tell you. You have been and are being loved and pursued by God. And He wants to save you. He's a good, good Father. And He wants you as a son and as a daughter. Come to Him. For the one who has no idea that they're lost, it's time to be found. And if one or more of you are sitting here today saying, I'm good. I'm here after all. But I'm good. No, I know I'm not perfect. But when I look around this world, I think I'm okay. And I think if I stand before the gates and I say, look at my life. No, I know it's not perfect, but God, look at my life. I I tried hard. I I worked well. I served many. I gave. If that God won't let me in, I think He will. But if He won't, then I don't want to be in anyway. That's not a God I want. I would say the same thing to you. You have been and are being loved and pursued by a good Father who wants you saved. Wants you as a son and a daughter. But He's not only a good Father, He's a holy and just God. So come to Him. And for the one who is somewhere in between, you would say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but if I'm honest, that's still me. I believe, but I continue to struggle with unbelief. I have hope, and then I stumble. I have faith, and then I doubt My faith seems at times flimsy, especially recently in the circumstances of life. 
And if anyone could resonate with that, then one, be reminded of what God has done and hear again what He is doing. You are being loved and pursued by a holy God. And He wants you to know your founding and your place in His family. Acts 8 and 9, we won't get through 9 today, but Acts 8 and 9 show us God's love and pursuit of all kinds of lost people. It's the whole spectrum. It's so powerful. For the one who knows they're lost and is seeking, is reaching, is looking for, looking for God, is looking for hope, is looking for meaning. They're, they're on a quest. They're searching. We're going to see that in the next portion. There's this Ethiopian man who is trying to find God and is bumbling his way around. But God ultimately finds him. For the one who has no idea that they're lost, who believes that they are good, if not just good, maybe better than most, in fact, believes they are doing what God's will is and couldn't be further from the love and grace of God. We see Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, not at all reaching and looking for a relationship with the Holy God, but Jesus comes and finds him. And for the one who is somewhere in between, this mixed bag of faith and religion, trying to live well and do good, but kind of on their own terms, maybe casual in many ways, maybe going through the motions, we see and find Mr. Simon, the sorcerer, in this next portion of chapter 8 that I have not yet read. Some of the most unlikely people are found by God and radically saved. If that doesn't give us hope today, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done or have not yet done, God is actively loving and pursuing you. For those of us who have been pursued by this reckless love of God and have been saved, needing that reminder maybe again today, still, still feeling at times lost or blind, but we also look into our world, our fields, of our family, our neighborhood, our, our workplace, our community, and we see people that are hopelessly lost. Whether seeking and searching, whether blinded or whether completely distant from any kind of pursuit, feeling I'm good, but we see them, these loved ones, these friends, acquaintances. This, these stories, this picture, this, this letter should give us an incredible amount of hope that even the lost, the last, and the seemingly least are not without hope and not outside of God's immediate reach. Be reminded and do not give up. Lost people, all lost people, matter to God and He wants them saved. So for the lost here, He is loving and pursuing. For those that have been saved, be reminded of what He has done. And for all of us, I hope we end with a conviction that God is using us, inviting us, as His primary means to be His witnesses in a lost world. He does not need us. We prayed about that this morning in the upper room. Being reminded that 
if we don't speak, even the rocks will cry out. And yet he has no plan B. He does not need one. He is sending and commissioning his people in the, in the most brilliant and surprising strategic plan to impact a world that has ever been thought of. You and me, being his mouthpiece, being his vessel, being his hands, being his feet. So I pray that we would have a conviction to join him in his mission as we are reminded of his love and pursuit of us. That he's found us in the midst of our deepest lostness. So back to verse 1. Arising on that great day, this persecution against the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, fulfilling Acts 1.8. Persecution and hardship once again redeemed and becomes a part of God's plan. What men intend for evil, God takes and uses for good. Persecution for the church is like wind to the seeds. It scatters them and a harvest, a greater harvest is the result. Jesus said in John 12, 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now he's speaking of himself, that he must die. But also, the call of the disciple is to lay down their life, to take up their cross. And unless that's the posture, we never have the fullness of what could be seen and experienced in the harvest. It would produce many seeds. And even Stephen, back to Stephen, his life and his death ultimately produced a far greater harvest that in life he could have ever produced. That's God's will at times. To use and redeem persecution, if not to send it and bring it, that we might be scattered. The word scattered in Acts 8 has the same root in fact, could in some ways be translated as diaspora. For the Jews, that was a powerful term. They had been scattered. They had fled throughout their history. Really, they'd been a people scattered. The diaspora. And even today, there is a diaspora of the Jewish people around the globe. This is the first Christian diaspora. The Jewish believers are being scattered it literally means this, like the sowing of seed. And so off they go, being sown into these new fields in Judea and Samaria. Now those who were scattered, diasporad, they went preaching the word. They didn't go in quietness for refuge. They, they go out preaching the word, proclaiming why they're even there. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed and there was much joy in the city. You may remember in John chapter 4, the disciples wanted to travel around Samaria. And Jesus said, no, we will go through Samaria. I'm on a mission. And he sat down by a well and he had an interaction with a woman at a well. 
And at that place, Jesus said, this is John 4.35, I don't have it on the screen, but at John 4.35, he said to his disciples, look up, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. So not only is Acts 1.8 being fulfilled, John 4.35 is being fulfilled. The fields are white, ripe, ready for the harvest, even right here in Samaria, the place where you would have rather avoided and gone completely around. Lift up your eyes. The Greek there is pay attention. Open your eyes. Look up. Stop looking at your navel. Look up and see what the reality of the situation. Well, the Samaritans as a people, they didn't have the greatest favor with the Jews, nor did they care much about the Jews. Their history goes way back to when the ten northern tribes broke off from Israel, established their their own conglomerate, their own nation, ultimately, the northern kingdom. They set up their capital city, not in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. They set up their own temple. They said, we're done with this. We're done with you. God judged them. He brought the Assyrian army to scatter them. One of the first diasporas. Many were taken into exile. In place of those taken into exile, many Assyrians moved into Samaria to live and to take over the commerce that they could find in that region. Once God delivered them in grace and mercy, as he continues to do, rescuing his people, delivering his people, those northern tribes came back to resettle. And in that place found Assyrians who had set up and lived and worked, and now they intermarried and interspersed with those who lived in that region. So that's their history. And for any, any true Jew, they would have said, Samaritans are unclean. They've intermarried. They are, not the, they are not true Israel. Not only that, but they've set up their own temple. They don't subscribe to the whole of God's word. They, they take bits and pieces and follow their religious regulations as they see fit. And you can see why some of that division and animosity and derision existed, even hatred between the two of them. So when Jesus said, I have a mission in Samaria, when he said the fields are white for the harvest in Samaria, when one of the most famous stories he ever told was about a Samaritan fulfilling the true law of love for a neighbor, every time that must have felt like grating to their ears, nails on a chalkboard, how could it be? And so when Jesus' final words are, you will be my witnesses in Samaria. Imagine what they were thinking. Maybe they weren't even putting any strategic plans. Maybe they said, well, maybe someday, but not us. And so persecution comes, scatters them, and Philip is one to say, I'm willing to go wherever God sends. And he goes into Samaria to preach the word. I would guess that many of these early Christians would have been astonished, not just that Philip went to Samaria, but now the gospel is taking root amongst the Samaritans. Imagine them thinking, if not saying, okay, we know that God loves all people, but even the Samaritans? Who might we think are the least likely? to ever respond 
to the hope of Christ, to turn to Him as King and Savior, to be transformed. Who, who, who fills in that blank? We know that God loves all people, but even... I'll give you a moment. This is rhetorical. I'll give you a moment. Is it a people, a nation, an ethnicity, or is it probably more likely those of a certain political view or lifestyle? But even, or does who come to mind but an individual, a family member, a co-worker, a friend? This should not be hard to answer. Who is the least likely, seemingly the furthest off, the most lost, that even, even the love and pursuit of God would reach them? We need not look around us. We need look only in a mirror. Because until we fill that blank with me, then we have not begun to understand our lostness our sin, the depth of God's love and pursuit, and the power of the gospel. Until we say, me, I am the least, the last, and the lost. And Jesus pursued me. He died for me. The Apostle Paul, as we see him, Saul, standing there believing he's doing God's Will, and I'm not going to preach this sermon yet because we're getting to Saul. But he came to know this. He thought he was so close to God and he was so far from God, so lost. Here's a couple of things he will come to say. He filled in the blank with me. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When he wrote to Timothy, this young pastor, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is toward the end of Paul's life. Not toward the beginning, toward the end of his life and ministry. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The way he writes that phrase, it certainly can be taken as him speaking only of himself. And I think he believed it. But the way he writes it is, Timothy, until you understand and until the, the people understand that Jesus has pursued you, that you are the foremost of sinners. You won't begin to grasp the depth of his love and the power of the gospel. Now, it's no requirement that we understand the depth of our lostness before we are found and saved by God. Paul's life proves that. He was not looking. Jesus found him. But if we don't come to know the depth of our lostness, I don't know that we will ever join God in his mission to reach lost people, especially the present day Samaritans from our perspective. Let's put it a different way. If we, if you and I, have done something to find God, to be saved, to receive and earn His salvation, 
then so can others. I, if, if your story is, I, I sought God, I looked, I worked, I read His Scriptures, I found Him, then so can others. And you might like the idea of being used by Him. You may read Scripture and feel some form of guilt that you must be used by Him, but you will never be convicted that lost people matter desperately. And if you do not go, they may not be saved. I think I just preached the sovereignty of God and the free will of God in the last 30 seconds. So there you go. If we don't say, we don't come to realize the depth of our lostness, how far His love and pursuit has reached to find us, we may never truly be in position to be sent and used by Him in any field that He might send and call. If we don't say, I am the Gentile. I am the Gentile. I am the one that doesn't have the right heritage or background, the right name, the right upbringing. That's me. I am the Samaritan. I am the one who is following some of God's law. Is determining what to live by and not live by. I am the foremost of sinners. I'm no different than Simon. You say, who? Simon. Simon. We've been talking, we're going to get to Simon. Simon. Not Simon Peter. What is it about Simon? Simon, the magician, he needs a new name too. He needs a whole new identity and God finds him. Simon the Samaritan. Verse 9. Here we are, back to Acts 8, verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Somehow he is opening himself up and tapping into the demonic. And he is astonishing his people. Now from what we, the brief little bit that we know about Simon, he is all about himself. And somehow he has found this ability to perform signs. Not him, but another power. And he's attracting attention and approval and likely money, a livelihood from this deception. Here is Simon. And you may take exception now if, I'm calling you Simon. Oh, really? So you haven't spent the majority of your life looking for the attention and approval of others. Hoping that others will think and say that you are somebody great. Trying to find identity, purpose, a meaning, something that sets you apart. And whether that's out of insecurity, a need to be loved, accepted, approved of, or whether that's out of true pride. We do think we're something great and others should take notice. Maybe we've fooled others, but we haven't fooled God. In some ways, we can live in, in a false identity so long that we fool ourselves. God sees us exactly as we are, right to the core. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And what's so amazing about the gospel 
What's so incredible about the depth of His love is He comes after us anyway. He wants us anyway. He knows every wart and wrinkle and still loves us and wants us. The reckless love of God. His love and forgiveness reaches even the Simons. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after believing, being baptized, he continued with Philip. And he saw the amazing signs and great miracles and he was amazed. So here's a man who's been looking and seeking his whole life for meaning, for value, for purpose, thinking it's coming in the approval and attention of man, in some form of power that he's found. But when he sees and hears about the gospel and sees the demonstrations of the power of the Spirit, it is nothing like what he has known. He's astonished. He's amazed. And he wants that. He's tapped into, he's seen something now that he wants deeply. And then something goes awry. His deep longing still for meaning, for purpose, for value, for approval, for acceptance. He's come to believe. It says he's believed in Jesus and he's been baptized. Yet his faith is still weak. His desire and his heart for something more still reigns. And what happens? Well, the apostles, Peter and John, are sent to Samaria. I wonder if there was a conversation like, Philip is, we're hearing a report of Philip in Samaria and great things seem to be happening and people are coming to the Lord. Peter and John, what do you think about checking that out? So they go down, they discern, this is true. This is the gospel ministry. It's having power and effect. And they ask about the indwelling or coming of the Spirit. And in some ways it hasn't yet happened it's a little bit of a confusing passage so they lay hands on them and they receive the spirit it's like this mini pentecost moment that happens in samaria now now many have taken this passage and i think out of context have said see there's a subsequent work and filling of the spirit that must happen second to salvation you can believe and be baptized and then you must experience the filling of the spirit at a second time scripture is very clear that there is an ongoing empowering and filling and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers. That's a clear teaching. But there's been much division over the exact nature of that. And I don't think in this context you can use it to make that claim. Because of the division that had previously existed between the true Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans, God wanted to eradicate. No more division. So the apostles, Peter and John, the leaders of the church, come and initiate essentially a Pentecost-type moment amongst Samaria to unify the church. And we can, there's plenty of room for conversation and discussion on that because it has divided countless scholars and commentators. So I won and want to present that as a likely possibility that God's intention is to build a church to unify a people, Jew and Gentile, even the least, last, and greatest, the most lost. Paul would say something about this, Ephesians chapter 4, 
verse 4 and following. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. There's a unity that's taking place in the church, even amongst the Samaritans. Now let's pick up the story. We see Simon having believed. He's been baptized, filled with the Spirit, right? He's right there amongst them. He's with Philip, so all of these things are true. And yet he proves what we already all know, that sin continues to lurk amongst us, in us. And Simon kind of proves it and goes off the rails here. Verse 18, when Simon sees the Spirit is at work and the Spirit is given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offers them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That's clearly the economy that Simon worked in. He had paid to learn what he learned about the, the powers of darkness. And so he's going to do the same thing. This is such value, I would give anything for it. What, what do you need? And how much did Peter and John have anyway? So he probably, in his flesh, is thinking, I, I can help out the work, I can bless them, and I can receive. And he doesn't think about the depth of what he's asking. And the rebuke is sharp. Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You can say, Peter, you're a little harsh. It's a brand new believer. <laughs> Peter tended to say what was on his mind. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, in this ministry, is what I, I believe Peter is meaning. For your heart is not right before God. To join us in this, you've got to grow deeply and primarily in humility. Your whole economy is off. Your whole perspective is off. What you are desiring to have even if right now you think it's to be used for ministry first, you're coming out of a whole life that says it's all about me. And with a new power, I could gain even more attention and approval and affirmation, and I could be right there with the apostles. And every one of us has felt very similar things. Every one of us has probably tried to shortcut our way to maturity, to holiness. We look at people and say, man, they're... Their walk with Jesus, incredible. Their knowledge of the word, amazing. How do they walk through that trial with, with joy, with peace, with patience? I want that. What's the fastest way to get there? And how can I not suffer before I, to learn those lessons? We all want to shortcut it. And well, Simon's just showing who we are. I'll pay anything, I'll do anything because I want that. And he shows again that sin is still lurking and rearing its ugly head. And just like in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira who came in with this deception, wanting approval, attention, wanting a name for themselves by how much they were going to give and paraded around and they're struck dead. I wonder if Peter believed as he saw the same sin and the same heart in Simon that Simon was going to be struck down there in that moment. May your money perish with you. There's no, room, there's no room for this. Well, he, doesn't, he isn't struck down. And that's why, again, we come to Acts and it's description, not prescription. That's why any one of us is sitting in this room today. Because we haven't been struck down because of our sin of pride or greed 
or our desire to find the approval of and attention of others. God's mercy is in our lives. God's mercy was in the life of Simon at this point. It seems like Peter picks up on that and says, okay, you're still standing here amongst me, so you have no part in this until you repent, ask for forgiveness, and grow in the way of holiness and in humility. That's what he's offering to Simon, and Simon actually responds well. Help, pray for me. That's a little more intense than that. Martin Luther said the entire life of believers is one of repentance. As we come to see again the sin that still lurks within us, that still comes out, rears its ugly head, that our own selfish and fleshly desires that we, we don't want a part of anymore, but they, they keep messing things up. Now, the Apostle Paul knew this too, Romans seven eighteen. He said, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. He knows he's filled by the Spirit, right? This is this tension and dichotomy. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And if you, if you don't know that wrestling, you're not even walking with the Lord. This is, I see a lot of nods. This is a daily realization. What I want to do, who I want to be, who I know I should be in Christ, I am not there yet. I need the Spirit. I need the help of the Lord. And for any of us who know that we are just like this, just like what Paul is describing, no different than, than Simon ultimately, those of us that would want the results of godliness without the effort, without the work, those of us that believe that we need something in addition to Jesus for fulfillment, some approval, attention, some recognition, some identity other than what Jesus in Jesus we have, well, we are still needing to see the depth of our lostness. We still need to come to join Paul to say, I am the foremost of sinners. To begin to understand the hope and the greatness of the Gospel. And it is a lifetime pursuit. Mercy and forgiveness continues to be extended as it was to Simon that day, it is to you and it is to me. Invitation to join Christ in His mission is still being offered to us. And what I can't promise you is it will be offered tomorrow. That the invitation stands tomorrow. Because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. In fact, I would say, and I'll drive this home again, that the effectiveness of our witness is directly proportional to the understanding of the depth of our own lostness. Because as we come to see how far we have been or as how far we would be apart from the love, pursuit, and mercy of God, we cannot possibly reach in 
to the Samaritan-like fields in our life. But if we do, if we see it, if we receive it, then when we go and proclaim, like Philip, when we go and preach, we don't preach from above. And I thought about that in my notes because I'm standing two steps up. I should be right here, sitting as low as I can. Who's the lowest one in the room here? As we preach and proclaim, we are eye-level with anyone, with everyone, the least, the last, the lost, because we know what Christ has done for us. We become his witnesses. The response is not ours. We don't change people's hearts. There's even the signs, and even if we could perform signs and wonders that were given to Philip, those just made the Jews more angry. The results are the work of the Spirit, but our faithfulness to be His witnesses as we recognize the depth of our own lostness, the greatness of His love and mercy, maybe begins to convict us to see the fields in a whole new way. So what must we do? If you're lost this morning, and all of that was a lot of gibberish, and you want to get back to where I started and say, I came in, I'm lost. I've searched in any other number of places, in people, in wisdom, in knowledge, in pursuits, in accolades, in profession, and it's all meaningless. I am lost. I am that one. Come to Jesus. Tell him the depth of your lostness. He already knows it. Tell him you want to believe in the depth of his love, though you can't fathom it. Begin to confess the ways you've turned to any and every other thing and person but him. And he receives you with grace, with mercy. Tell him how much you still are yet to understand, but you long to love him as he has loved you. He hears you, for he has knit you together. Come be his son and daughter. And as you come to the table this morning, that's a first step in a tangible way. Because that, that first piece of prayer is internal, is heart, is between you and the Lord. Now you come to join the others who have all said that same thing. I was lost, but Jesus, you found me. And I'm coming again because I need to be reminded again of what you have done. You've given your life. Your body's been broken. You've shed your blood that I might have the forgiveness of sins. You've risen from the dead that I have hope for what is yet to come. That's what we proclaim when we come to the table. And if that's your desire, you are welcome to this table as we respond in song. Let that be one of your responses. Move in that way. And for all of us, we pray for a conviction to join Him in His mission. And if you are not convicted, if you still are like, I want to be, I like the idea, but I just don't feel like it then our prayer is probably, Lord, remind me of my lostness. Somehow I've forgotten. Show me the depth and the level of my own pride and self-centeredness. Because that must be what's blinding me. I don't see how wide and deep and high and long is the love of Christ. I must not. So remind me, Lord. Help me see it. Help me hear it. Maybe even in the songs that we sing, well, as you sit and pray, he will begin to remind you. And that conviction may grow. Because as we walk out these doors, we're walking into a mission field. We're walking into a Jerusalem, a Judea, a Samaria, and in some ways to the ends of the earth. 
That's our reality. That's our call, but it's also an invitation. God doesn't lose if we say no. We lose. And if you are convicted and you're striving to live your life this way, but when you look into the fields, you're saying, I don't know what to do, what to say, where to go. Just remember, you have been planted in fields that no one else in this room has, that nobody else can reach. You've already been planted in those places. So you're asking, Lord, open my eyes. Like Jesus said to his disciples at that well in Samaria, help me pay attention, Lord. Just help me see the fields that are white for the harvest. Because I, I don't see it. I look into the field and it looks dead. Help me see with your eyes. Let that be your prayer as you respond. And then as you go, may you go in the power and the grace and the hope of the gospel as we are reminded of the depth of his love, pursuit, and mercy to us. Team, why don't you come as I pray and lead us into response. God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, Holy Spirit, we thank You for the power, the preeminence of Your Word. Above and beyond any of our own thoughts and our own knowledge and our own wisdom, beyond anything earthly, deeper and greater, revelation of who You are, what You've done, what You've promised and what that means for us today. Thank You. That we need not be lost seeking meaning. Seeking what ultimately will end in an endless pursuit. You are loving and pursuing us. And we come to You today. Lord, humble us. Grow our faith. Build our love. Build our hope. As we come in repentance of the sin that still lurks We want nothing of it, Lord. Strip it down. Thank You, Jesus, that Your blood covers that. We receive it again anew. And send us, Lord, into the fields, into new fields that You've not yet sent, or open our eyes into the fields You've already planted us into. That others might know the hope of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the redemption of Christ. Oh, we love you so deeply, Lord. All for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Communion table is open. There's tables in the back. As you respond, come. We have a chance to give and give generously as a response to what Christ has done to us. So I invite you to give. If you're newer to our family, this is a privilege for those that have been grafted here have been planted here. If you're not yet sure, don't give. Give a contact card so we can learn more about each other. And pray. Maybe you're praying for one another. Maybe they don't know it. You're praying for the one around you. Pray that you would hear God's voice and respond as he leads. I believe we've got a new song that we are leading out with. So if you know the words or catch, catch it, sing along with. Otherwise, just receive and ponder on the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, the reckless, reckless love of Christ.